Welcome to Faithful Economy, a podcast of the Association of Christian Economists. We host conversations about important economic and moral questions. I'm your host, Steve McMullen of Hope College. For this first episode, I will be interviewing Bruce Wittick. Bruce is a professor of economics and the director of the program in International and Development Economics at the University of San Francisco. He is also affiliated with the Kellogg Institute at the University of Notre Dame, the Center for Effective Global Action at Berkeley, and is helping build an Institute for Poverty and Development Studies with Westmont College in San Francisco. He is also a founding director of the nonprofit Mayan Partners. I was keen to launch this podcast with a conversation with Bruce because he is a real leader and exemplar for Christians in the economics profession. Bruce's work is laser-focused on improving the lives of those in poverty around the world, and he has made a name for himself as a creative scholar. Our conversation focuses on his recent book, Shrewd Samaritan, Faith, Economics, and the Road to Loving Our Global Neighbor. I think you'll agree with me that Bruce is an engaging scholar and definitely someone to learn from. Okay, welcome, Bruce. It's really good to have you with us today. Great to be with you, Steve. I'd like to have a conversation mostly today about your book, which was released last year, uh, called The Shrewd Samaritan, Faith, Economics, and the Road to Loving Our Global Neighbor. I just finished reading this text, and it was, uh, it was a really, it was a quick read. It was an edifying book. I, I feel like I learned more development economics over the last weekend than in, in much of my time as an economist. Uh, so I can say from the outset that you just do a remarkable job in this book bringing uh, cutting-edge research into a text in a way that's really readable and approachable. And, and thanks so much for pulling that together for us. I think it's a great service thanks. to the community. Oh, great. Well, yeah, thanks for the kind words. Yeah, glad you um, I, I think I think the best way to start would be to invite you to try to describe the overall purpose of your book. Could you lead in with something like that? Sure. Yeah, the, the, the purpose of the book is to help just ordinary people engage both global and domestic poverty in a meaningful and effective way. And um, and it's in its aim generally at the faith community. But um, but it's also aimed more broadly than than that. And I've enjoyed doing talks in both circles, actually, both both at churches and um, and, and also in secular giving circles. And, and it's and it's been neat to see the reaction from 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 both kinds of both kinds of folks. And um, what 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 I hope to do in the book is is take people through what I call the six eyes, which are this this these sort of stages that I've noticed people tend to go through in their relationship with the poor and, um, and, and then in the end kind of help people to find a role and, and a calling in their own lives about how they can engage poverty in a meaningful and effective way. So your audience really is the layperson, not yes. professional economists per se, although I have a PhD and I got a lot out of the book, as I said, and I think you do a great job pitching it there. Quick question about about your your reception of this work with with communities that are not Christian. You do have a fair bit in here about Christianity explicitly and a lot of Christian metaphors. I've never tried bringing that kind of writing to a secular audience before. So so tell me how it went. Yeah, you know, but when I started to write the book, I I, I talked to some some different authors, including. Uh, Ron Sider was 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 one who used to be who used to be my professor at, at Eastern University, and told them that I wanted to write a book that um, that was definitely faith based, that was that was Christian, 
but that was accessible to a broadly based audience. And um, one of the things that he told me and some other people told me is you can do that as long as it's not preachy. <laughs> and and as, as long as it doesn't, it, it, as long as you're coming from a sincere point of view, um, you can base your, um, you can base where you're coming from in the book on, on a couple of parables and, and draw insights from those parables about how people should engage poverty. And, um, and it's, it's probably not going to turn off too many, too many people. And, and, and actually I found that to be true that, that, um, about, about half the, the emails I get or requests to speak are, are just from secular, secular circles on it. And about half are faith-based, which is, which has been really cool. And, um, and I, I think it's just important for everybody to have a meaningful and effective engage, engagement with, with our global neighbor or, or our local neighbor who's, who's in poverty, um, Christian or no. Um, but, I, but I think as we do that, we begin to, you know, as, as, as we'd say out in California, surf on God's wave, right? I think that, I think that wherever we're at in our, in our faith journey, engagement with the poor is something that brings us closer to God wherever we are. Um, whether we've been in church all our life or whether we're new to, um, we're, whether we're new to ideas of faith. That's great. Uh, I hope your experience continues to be good. Um, you know, I think I, I'd like to try to dig into one of the big themes in the book. And, and one way I, I'm going to approach this is to talk about my, my immediate reaction as I started reading. And that was um, that I thought I was reading a book that was a kind of Christian version of an effective altruism book, because I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with the effective altruism movement uh, and the kind of utilitarian logic that they bring to, um, to thinking about where to put your money and where to put your time. Uh, but as I got on in, I realized it, that it wasn't exactly the same. And, and you actually have a pretty uh, pointed critique of effective altruism and of Peter Singer's book in particular. Uh, maybe you could, you could summarize your critique of, of an effective altruism kind of approach and then show or, or talk about how your approach is different. Sure. Um, well, I think there are a lot of things that are laudable about effective altruism. And, um, and, and, and I, th I think I titled one of the subsections of the book, you know, effective altruism, chewing the chicken and spitting out the bone. Because, because I think that for, for probably most people, effective altruism moves them in the right direction but um, but but the reason I I personally wouldn't adopt it as is a framework for thinking about engaging poverty or advocate that others do the same is that um, it's I I don't think it's it's built for at least from a from a biblical perspective I don't think it's built on a on a, on a on a sound foundation in the sense that um, a lot of singers' work is built on the idea that we're to increase sort of overall utility right? He's a utilitarian. And what that means is maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. So, so in other words, like if you can't, if, if you're, if you're disabled or, or something and you can't feel pleasure, well, you're kind of, or, or pain, you're, you're sort of out of the equation. Right. And, and I think that, um, I think that it, it also, it has some implications that I'm a little bit uncomfortable with, which is just this, this uh, kind of, bang for your buck, which, which I do talk about in the book is generally often being a good thing, but taking that to the point that the rich become these human ATMs for the poor, that, mm. that our purpose in earning is simply to sort of funnel cash to these NGO programs that have proven to be effective. And so, and, and, and there are a number of other critiques that, that people can read about in the book, but, 
But what, what I favor is, is a framework that was, I mean, it's in scripture, but it's also been for a long time, been a part of Catholic social teaching, which is a human dignity, human flourishing framework. And um, in the sense that I, that I think what our purpose is, is to promote human flourishing and, and human flourishing. I mean, I guess the weakness with it is it sounds a little vague, but, um, but, but I think people, um, when they, when they, uh, when they see it, they know it. And it's people that are, um, that are engaged holistically, both in, um, in physical, meaning physical needs, psychological needs, social needs, um, material needs, um, that, that people are educated so they can more educated so they can understand their world and have, and be good stewards of their, of their resources. Now, all these things, um, good relationships are, are, are key. Um, Singer doesn't really have much to say about, about good relationships. And, and there's so many components of even how secular researchers measure happiness that don't include, for example, just health. Health is really important. Health is very important. But, um, but I think a, 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 human, a human dignity framework, uh, it subsumes effective altruism, right? In the sense that, that it, uh, it, it calls for effectiveness, but it also, it also views the human being as, as much more holistic and, and not just reduced to outcomes in income, education, and health, which, is, which tends to be sort of a secular view of looking at human beings. But, but we know that there's much more to life than that. <laughs> and, and I yeah. think a human flourishing framework incorporates that. You know, I think I probably because I'm an economist or, or maybe not, but I do think I have I have kind of absorbed a pretty materialistic vision of economic development and also a pretty materialistic vision of, of what kinds of interventions can work. And, and I'll tell you, when I first started hearing about the kind of research that you've been doing over the last five or 10 years, um, I was a little skeptical of the of the holistic interventions and i was thinking well you know you're we're probably just better off if we go with mosquito nets but you know but the evidence is just really good so uh you you came and visited hope about four or five years ago and we got to see you uh sort of make your argument in um in detail and um and one of my former students jeff bloom has has started to dig into this stuff as well and and my mind really has been changed i i'm really surprised um frankly that not I'm not surprised in that in, in retrospect, it's weird to me, but I would not have expected uh, something like Compassion International to have as big effects as, as you guys found. Um, and that's all, that's all really encouraging to me. Like, it's nice to see that these things that we sort of believe as human beings also work in terms of economics. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that's not always true. <laughs> I think there are things that <laughs> I think that there are things that we would like to believe that are really effective that, that really aren't aren't very effective. But um, but compassion is and 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 it's been it's been so interesting with compassion, even as they've done other studies that have basically followed up on pretty much just what we, what we did. They they essentially find the same effects everywhere they've been That's been replicating great. it. And um, and and I think that the key with something like the compassion intervention is to try to get under the hood and figure out what are the driving factors that allow it to work. And and there's there's a lot of secular research that's been going on in in this area too. I mean, it, there's a recent study that's forthcoming in the Journal of Development Economics uh, on it's a, a randomized controlled trial that looks at the impacts of village, village enterprise, which is another holistic intervention. So. So they, they give a cash grant, access to savings and credit, 
organize women into these very tightly knit social groups, um, provide coaches and training and very holistic intervention, um, sort of semi-secular, um, I, I think. Um, but, uh, you know, what they find is you, you kind of need all the elements <laughs> there. And, and even in, in, um, in, in, the, in the famous evaluation of the BRAC programs in seven countries, which is another holistic, it's a secular holistic intervention, you find that these are really, really effective. And, and you know, this is a theme that keeps appearing. You have the randomized controlled trial that, that Dean Carlin carried out with his, with his uh, co-authors in the Philippines holistic intervention it was it was actually randomizing a discipleship program right and they, and they find that it raises incomes nine percent among the treated group so so it's yeah it's not just compassion it's you kind of look across the board and you see these these inter- interventions especially especially among the very poor that have that that have material components that relieve you know what economists would call external constraints to credit and things like that the schooling um that have the social or psychosocial elements um, and some that have spiritual elements. And, um, and in general, we're finding them to be, to be really effective. Um, Jeff Bloom, um, your, your former student and I have this, have this new paper on the jumpstart kindergarten program that was introduced by the same, by international care ministries, the same nonprofit that, that Dean Carlin worked with. And, and we look at this program. It's a very holistic preschool program and it teaches teaches reading and math skills appropriate at that level as well as just how to play nice together and it's it's a it's a christian it's a christian intervention and we we ran it in a horse race against this government kindergarten that was introduced um shortly after that and and find much much bigger impacts on third grade test scores than the government program and we find that it's mediated partly through developing these socio-emotional skills. And, and this is something that, that people like James Hackman, the Nobel laureate has, has found with early childhood interventions that, that, um, that, that these holistic interventions, really caring for people, loving people, um, helping, helping them to develop these sort of soft skills and character is, is actually really, really important. And, and I, I think that's one of the reasons why the compassion program is so effective. It's not just about paying their school fees. Yeah, yeah, it's it's true, and and this stuff is really interesting. And I really, I also appreciate it as a as someone who did labor economics and education policy. I did appreciate the the way you brought in some some really good research there as well, coming out of Heckman's team, um, and and tied it in to provide a little bit more of an explanation about how and why some things work and some things work, uh, some things don't work, and these kinds of things. You know, one of the biggest surprises, uh, less of a surprise to me because I've been in the economics world for the last uh, five or 10 years, but probably more surprising to, uh, to your average listener might be the, the effectiveness of these unconditional and conditional cash grants. So could we talk about that a little bit? Uh, mm-hmm. how, what kind of evidence do we have about, about giving an unconditional cash grant in the developing world? Um, in terms of effectiveness, but also maybe some sense of of why these work and um, to try to address the degree to which this can be counterintuitive to folks. Yeah, yeah. The, the results are a little bit nuanced, but in general, in general, can both conditional and unconditional cash transfers are pretty effective. I mean, I guess we could start with, with the conditional cash transfers because sure. those really came first, yeah. at least on, on a larger scale with um, 
programs like Oportunidades in Mexico, which has gone through various name changes. Uh, so, so we see we see a pretty good impact on schooling. You know, about mm. um, almost a year of extra schooling um, since these cash transfers are are conditional upon people around moms keeping their kids in in school. Um, not to mention the effect of the cash itself. Yeah. So, um, so, so the World Bank and others have helped um, help um, scale this up to, gosh, I don't know how many countries now, dozens of countries now have conditional cash transfer programs. So they're very popular politically and, um, and they're, they're pretty effective. The, the long-term impacts from them seem to be, seem to be uh, from the education that they produced uh, rather than from the cash transfers. And those impacts are bigger when more educated people have jobs um, that um, are available to them, that uh, that are accessible to them with the higher levels of education. So, in other words, and we we see this in the compassion study too. You, you can have a, an intervention that increases education, but if the macro economy is not in good shape, if it's not providing the kinds of jobs that that people with higher levels of education would would aspire to, then then the impact on employment and adulthood and income is 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 not as high as you would like, right? So. So we always have to remember the macro economy and, and, and also remember that big changes happen through macro policy and, and trade policy and openness, yeah. right? What, what we're dealing with um, at the micro level are, are ways to help facilitate individuals making a transition out of poverty. Um, but, um, but the macro economy is really important for the effect of conditional cash transfers. And for unconditional cash transfers, just giving people cash with no strings attached, the evidence seems to be that in the short and medium term, they're really effective. In the long term, the, the jury's still out. They, they may not have the transformative long-term effects that we maybe were hoping for a few years ago, but mm-hmm. there's, still, there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on that. We, we were, everybody was kind of hoping that unconditional cash transfers could just, um, could, could could just be this positive shock that if you, that if they were big enough they could just jolt somebody out of a, a vicious cycle of poverty, and we're still trying to figure out if that's true. <laughs> right. But but the the good thing about it is 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 you know in the short and medium term, so like from the time they happen until say three years out, there's really good evidence that they reduce the the, the number of days that children go to bed hungry. They increase assets. Um, they do they do a number of different things that we that we like to see. So it's, it's, it's a good use of money, um, but the long-term effects are – just because something doesn't have ultra long-term effects doesn't mean it's not, it's not a good donation to make. Um, so I, I guess on a, a little bit of a theoretical level, I could imagine a scenario in which there are pieces of civil society or the economy where you, you have to have a certain amount of income or education or, or wealth to kind of – just to be included, and then a cash transfer – even if it's unconditional, could be enough to just uh, sort of buy a family's way into the right networks and into maybe into schooling, um, maybe into a small business, maybe into a, a neighborhood. But you can imagine a lot of different ways in which poverty could kind of lock you out. Yeah. Um, is, is it fair to say that if we're in a condition in which the economy is is closed off. Like there just aren't opportunities for people below a certain level of poverty. Then a, mm-hmm. then a grant could, could open up lots of long-term opportunities. But if the poverty or if the barriers to, to wealth and sustainable income 
don't have to do with money. I mean, maybe this is like a rule of thumb, but if they don't have to do with money, like mm-hmm. then, then the cash grants just aren't going to have long-term effects. Yeah. That, that, that's hard to say. I mean, that, that, that's a complicated set of relationships. I, yeah. I think that um, I, I tend to think of, of two types of constraints, external and internal constraints. And so, yeah. and so external constraints being uh, like people have good ideas and aspirations, but they don't have a line of credit to start, to start an enterprise or right. they have aspirations for schooling, but there aren't schools, right? The, yeah. the, those would be, those would be external constraints. And um, in places where aspirations are high and, and the other pieces are in place, relieving external constraints can have a, can have a really big, have a really big effect. Um, in, in places where there are both internal and external constraints, in other words, internal constraints being low aspirations, low self-efficacy, just a general, cultural belief that gosh no matter what i do it's not going to matter you know we're still always going to be poor um then you might even have a program that could effectively relieve external constraints but it won't um it won't be that effective because it's the internal constraint that's binding right, right? that's that's limiting and so and so i think that those those things among other reasons like early childhood interventions are just a reason that i think holistic holistic programs in whatever kind of um, scenario that you might face tend, would tend to be more effective just because they're addressing more constraints. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, let, me, let me shift gears. Uh, there's, there's a lot of interesting work there and there's a lot, of, a lot of recent literature on that and folks can dig into it and maybe I'll, I'll try to link uh, to some of the stuff, other stuff that I know that you've written about some of these things uh, in the notes to this episode. Uh, I'd really like to... Th- to, to discuss a little bit with you the theme of uh, that, that you developed kind of in the second half of the book about the impact of Christianity and economic development, because I, I found this uh, both to be something that I did not expect to find in your book, but also really interesting. And so could you, um, could you give me the, the broad argument? Uh, what, is, what is the impact of Christianity uh, overall in the development world here? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I would... I would say that um, I'd like maybe to answer that to give two answers to one question. (laughs) One is like, one is a question I get a lot from practitioners, which is what does it really matter that we're a Christian NGO? Um, You know, like, you know, we're, we're doing microfinance. Like what, what difference does that make? Or we're giving vaccines or something. Well, I think that it does matter a lot, actually. I mean, I think that, that our motivations, I mean, uh, our faith, should inform not only our motivation, but our goals, what we actually see for people, which I think is a much more broadly based vision of human flourishing than is in secular circles. And it also affects our means too, like how we go about an intervention. I mean, in, in, in Corinthians, Paul talks about, you know, I can, um, I can do all these wonderful things, but if I don't have love, then, then it's, all, it's all worth nothing, right? And if we take that seriously, then as a Christian, Christian NGO, you know, we, we need to have our eye focused on that ball, that, that it's not all about ends, it's about means. I mean, Mother Teresa, for example, is just a beautiful example of this. The way she, the way she cared for people, it was m- almost mostly about means and less mm-hmm. about just, just these ends, just these like, you know, sustainable development goals or something. Um, so that's, that's answer number one to the question. <laughs> answer number two is, is evidence of the effect that Christianity that say Christian missions have had historically yeah. on, on populations over time. And so I think it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting exercise to, 
to evaluate Christian missions, not on what the main intention is, which is to make Christians, um, but even in sort of looking at these other human outcomes that secular folks would, would care about, like, like education or literacy or um, democracy or, um, or income, you know, and, and just looking at, so almost these sort of kind of only semi-intended consequences maybe of that, that historical missionaries might've had. And, and there's just this, this huge basket of evidence that in places where Christian missions have historically been that these outcomes are better. Um, One of my favorite ones is this, this one that was published in the quarterly journal of economics just a year or two ago by Felipe Valencia up at university of British Columbia. And he he looks at the work of the Jesuits among the Guayani in South America and very carefully, uh, you know, has studies these maps about where they worked and, um, and, and looks at compares them and uses a counter uses the counterfactual places where they didn't work and places where other orders work. But the Jesuits had a very holistic, you know, they're, they're almost kind of uh, similar to many NGOs today that a very holistic intervention, if you want to call that, you know, in with the Jesuit missions in the 1700s among the Guayani. And, uh, but then we're kicked out later through a political fight, which is the subject of the, the movie, the mission, which is also the title yes. of this paper. And, uh, and so what he finds is that is that uh, there are these really strong measurable impacts on both income and agricultural practices and different things in these areas where the Jesuits worked like two three hundred years ago, which is which is really impressive. And and then and then you have other work that's that's more broadly based, like Robert Woodbury's uh, work on the influence of missions on democracy, where he, where he studies studies missions all across the world, Protestant missions in this case, and finds that through, through uh, a better, better social ties, through literacy, through these different channels, that, um, that places where Protestant missionaries worked are more likely to have stronger democratic institutions. And there are a number of other papers, too, that, that, that find higher levels of literacy, paper by Nathan Nunn at Harvard in Africa, higher levels of literacy in Africa where mission, missionaries worked, um, places in India. So uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there must be, they must be out there, but I haven't read a paper that has found a negative impact of missionaries mm-hmm. on some of these secular outcomes. And I'm sure there are some papers that show that. And of course, missionaries made lots and lots of mistakes and continue to make mistakes to, to this day. But, but it is encouraging just to see even these, these secular outcomes um, that everybody can agree on are good, are good things higher where missions work has taken place. Yeah, I I think those those studies are really interesting. Of course, not because not because they justify uh, any of the the horrors that were done in in Christ's name over the over the many years in in colonial movements, but because uh, partly because I'm so used to reading about the bad stuff that missionaries did over the years uh, that it was um, partly just by being inundated in the social sciences in the 20th century in the academy that it's it's good to um, to be able to take a step back and say, okay, let's 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 take a broad look at some of these effects and see if um, uh, if there were some admittedly mixed but positive results in the long run, and that's that's both encouraging to to me as a Christian, but it's also um, it speaks to a kind of complementarity between the way Christians the the way we try to view um, our brothers and sisters all over the world. And the kind of tangible things that we care about, and maybe this 
maybe this connection between something like a holistic approach to development uh, has a has a much longer root in Christian thinking, as as the argument in your book, I think, I think justifies, um, and then it goes back a long way. I think I think it all fits together to be a picture that understanding the human person and thinking about human dignity has has positive effects both for the body and for the soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, maybe that be that might be rushing a little bit too far with the evidence we have, but. Um, but I did think the, the, that the, that section of the book was interesting. Now, do you have do you have any sense of whether or not theology matters? Because it sounded in the in the text like you were hinting that it might. You were making an argument about Faber um, and how some theologies might not have these same positive results, and some might. But you don't really dig into that much. I don't know if there's yeah. evidence there. Yeah, yeah. I think I think. Um... And, and and it starts to get a little about a little bit outside of my field. I mean, some some, some of this like with with some of the theology. But I think just to make general statements, I think even I mean, different world religions, for example, um, suggest different levels of agency for human beings in their relationship with the world. So 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 some religions tend uh, tend to be a bit fatalistic, um, and and not and and even even within Christianity. Even within evangelical Christianity, we talk about sort of God's dominion over the world and God is in control, right? Um, and but in general, say like in evangelical cir- circles, we don't emphasize that to the extent that we think that we have no agency over uh, our circumstances, right. right? We tend to like the 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 basic Protestant message is that we're, we're given that that God is good and God is in control in this kind of larger sense, but that we're given these, these set of principles that we're, um, that we're told are good for us and, and to live by them. And that we have these choices that matter and that will, that will affect things that will affect the livelihood of our neighbor, our, our families. We have the choice to love our neighbor or not love our neighbor. We have the choice to be industrious and hardworking or to be lazy and that all these things matter. Yeah. And, and, and ultimately uh, in some sense we're held accountable for these, for these choices. Right. Um, so if we're held accountable for something, then we must have some agency, right? I mean, it's just sort of logical to think that. And and so I think that that theology, when people receive a theology that that emphasizes that choices matter and that good choices lead to generally lead to good things, you know, like we might see in Proverbs, for example, that 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 tends to be uh, kind of a, a worldview condition that is auspicious for progress out of poverty, right? Whereas, whereas if, um, if we, if we see, uh, in, in theology, more of a fatalism, like, like, um, God is in control to the extent that it doesn't matter. My choices don't matter. And, and I'm, and I'm, um, I'm just going to wait on God for, for everything. There's, there's an element of truth in that, that we need to, that we need to do that. But, um, but it also, it also can, lead to a poverty trap where people believe that what they do doesn't matter. Um, but we know that what people do does matter. Right. Um, and so, 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 you, so in certain, in certain world religions, so sort of Protestant Christianity, some strains of Catholic Christianity, Confucianism, um, Judaism, you see, you see this human agency pretty strongly in other, in other, um, in other religions or strains of religions, some strains of Islam, some strains of developing world Catholicism, some strains of Hinduism um, or even Buddhism, you, um, you, you don't see that as strongly. 
and um, and and it and it can tend to produce a more fatalistic worldview. That makes a lot of sense. Now, um, of course, this isn't an argument for whether or not these theologies are true, right? It's more an argument that maybe some some way, some worldviews are more useful for for the way we shape the modern economy and these kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and yet Weber's thesis that you know, that Calvinism you know had something to do with industry in the early U.S. doesn't doesn't ever seem to die and and I, I keep seeing literature related to these things coming up both from sociologists and from economists. Um, well, well, there's there's more there, but I don't want to push you any further into areas outside your research. So let me. Um, but it's so fun. Steve. It, it is fun, and and like if we never talked about things that we were not experts in, then like I wouldn't get to talk about anything, and so that would, that would be debilitating. Um, I, I would like to to shift gears again and and ask a little bit about your project here from a different angle. So w- when I think about global poverty and poverty in the U.S one of the lenses that I often use to think about these issues is one of justice, right? And this is very common in the Christian literature about poverty as well, is to think about poverty as a justice issue. Uh, And yet I I see very little of that kind of language in your book. Your book is is very useful in terms of telling us what works and what doesn't work, uh, starting from the premise that poverty is, is clearly bad and that human dignity is something that we should uh, we should respect, and we can respect it in a lot of different ways, material, spiritual, psychological. Uh, mm-hmm. But but you don't make a sustained argument about justice here. Mm-hmm. Is is that because you think there aren't major justice issues or that you're you're putting them aside for the purposes of this particular project? How would you talk about 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 justice concerns in in global poverty in particular. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a great question. No, I, I do think they're 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 huge um they're huge economic injustices in, in, in the world. Uh, I mean one one for example is is simply access to credit. The people yeah. that need credit the most are the people with less collateral and therefore the people and and, and therefore the people that don't get credit. Um and and not to mention systemic racism and 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 different such such issues. Um, I, I tend, like as an economist, I, I tend to think of justice in some ways as, as good governance, you know, mm-hmm. like where, where you have governments that, that really care about kind of all of the, all of the people under their domain equally and care about their welfare and, um, and are honest and provide opportunities and where there is some redistribution from, from the rich to the poor. I mean, that, that, that has to happen. And that's part of, and that is part of social justice, right? Mm-hmm. Is is some level of equality of economic economic opportunity. Um, the book itself doesn't delve into those issues issues as much because the book is about how can ordinary people effectively engage poverty, right? So that's the so that's the focus. But but kind of in the back of the um, in the last chapter, I talk a little bit about macro policies, which are which are absolutely key. And this is something that even the recent Nobel Prize recipients, you know, Esther Deflo and Abhijit Banerjee, Michael Kramer have, have talked about, you know, these micro level interventions when they're effective are good, but they certainly, their effects pale in comparison to some, to the effects of, of good altruistic governance, for example, um, the difference between having, having um, a corrupt leader or, or, um, or leaders in a Congress or, or parliament um, compared to, to governments that genuinely, genuinely want to serve their citizenry. Right. Yeah. And, and that do promote a sense of social and economic justice, 
not that everything's ever going to be equal on the side of heaven, right. Um, yeah. Or perfect, but, but, um, but a sense where, where uh, po- different ty- types of poverty traps are addressed, for, for example, um, where, where children have access to education, you know, across tribe, race, race, ethnicity, religion, you know, these are, these are key, these are key things. The problem is the ordinary person in the United States, in the United States um, has very little impact over those um, yeah. over the formation of those policies in, in developing countries. However, what, what I do argue in the, in the book a little bit, and this is a very indirect answer to your question is that for example, these, these holistic interventions like early childhood interventions that essentially are, are make it more likely to produce fair minded, healthy uh, adults, <laughs> educated adults, you know, might increase the probability, probably increase the probability of good leaders coming to power, whether it's the mayor or the governor or the president, the prime minister. And, and that's something that give well can't measure very well. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so one can make this argument like effective altruism does that it's just all about these big bang for the buck health interventions, which are great. However, um, just because we've eradicated smallpox in certain areas of the world hasn't made them functioning developed societies, you know, in, in, in the sense of, yeah, broadly based economic justice, upward mobility from poverty and things like that. And that mm-hmm. often happens through good leadership. And so one of the things we, we don't think of enough, I think, in development is how do you, what kind of interventions do you pursue in a broadly based way so that, so that uh, a set of leaders is raised up who, who are truly sort of altruistic, caring leaders, um, not out for themselves, but, but genuinely have the interests of the common good, um, you know, in, in mind as they, as they assume power. And so, so I think for this reason, interventions like child sponsorship may in the long run have a better, have, have a a very high um, bang for the bang for the buck, as I call it in the, in the book, even compared to some of the health interventions, if what they're good at is producing good civic institutions, good governance and good leaders. You, you could imagine seeing really big and impossible to measure spillover effects over generations if if a good government or if if, if equality before the law is slowly established uh, and that in turn creates opportunities for a whole population. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, to to put to put a philosophical term on it, it almost looks like. Uh, it almost sounds like you're you're making an argument for justice as a virtue, uh, as as medieval folks would have thought of it, uh, that we need to cultivate, and we can think about how we cultivate the virtue of doing justice to one another and for one another, um, as opposed to thinking of justice only as a set of propositions about what kinds of actions are right and what kind of actions are wrong. Uh, I don't yeah, know I if that's th- reading too much into it, but no, I think that's true. I think. Um... These days at the university, we hear a lot about social justice in terms of people's rights, mm-hmm. um, but we hear less and less about character and virtue. Mm-hmm. And um, and and so and I think as 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 Christians, we need to be for justice. There's no there's no question about that. But um, but I think that we need to also um, promote interventions or institutions or, or movements that. Um, that build character in people. I think people of people of character promote justice, right? Um, and 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 so vir- virtue and character, I think, like especially like in early childhood interventions and in 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 other forms, I, I think are very very important. 
to, to human flourishing. It's hard to put that in our regressions, though, Bruce. <laughs> Real hard. Uh, all right, let me let me turn the conversation one more time and um, and and turn to thinking a little bit about poverty uh, domestically in the U.S. Uh, I myself am am sort of knee deep, actually, really up to my neck, I should say, to use the right metaphor in in thinking about. Um, Poverty, inequality, and redistribution in the U.S. And so I read with great interest. You, you have you have two actually very good chapters about about thinking about poverty in in the in the context of a relatively rich country. Um, and I wanted to to know how you thought about translating some of these lessons we have from from all of these these great studies of the developing world and some of this literature that you're you're digging into. What would this tell someone about how to think about poverty um, closer to home. Mm. I, th I think um, different kinds of interventions tend to be um, uh, more effective in different, in different contexts. So in, in the developing world, um, in, in many sort of rural places, for example, what's, what's often sort of the most scarce is capital, right? And so, so, um, so microfinance, cash grants to build small enterprises, can be really effective at stimulating um, economic activity, right? especially when targeted at the right people. Uh, in places where capital is abundant and technology is abundant, generally we don't focus interventions on trying to pump more capital and technology in a place where capital and technology is really abundant. We, the, the, the intervention we, we, um, we generally focus on is education or giving people the ability to interface with that capital and technology that all, that already exists, and so so a lot of the domestic interventions that I talk about, and and I think that just people talk about in general when we're talking about um, poverty in the United States, tend to be tend to be in education. Yeah. Um, but but I mean that that being said, just in in the in the last in the last few years or, or even you know decade or two, issues like homelessness have risen to the top of of the policy agenda in, in places where I live, like in San Francisco Bay area yeah. where um, we have this tremendous inequality and, and um, that's, that's driven people off the housing ladder and, mm -hmm. and into to sleeping in the streets. And it's, it's, it's even, you know, our governor says it's, it's, it's our shame. It's our, it's our blight that we don't, um, that we don't have, uh, that, we, that we don't have systems in place to address issues like, like homelessness or sort of vast, vast measures of inequality like we have in, in the San Francisco Bay area. So um, most of my, a lot of my reading sort of since writing the book has actually been on trying to understand what, what good research is, is done on homelessness. And, um, and that's been really interesting to, to read and kind of become more a part of. It would not shock me at all if you found that the situation of, of some of the folks in the U S in extreme poverty, at least, was analogous in that there might be multiple constraints um, and a holistic intervention um, might might be very useful. And I know that you you draw parallels between, um, as we noted before, the, the effectiveness of early childhood interventions um, in, in both places. You know, one policy that I've been reading about that I'm turning over in my head is, is child allowances. Um, basically, it would make the earned income tax credit refundable for, for families and maybe increase the size a little bit. And the, and the reason that came to mind is only because the research that I've seen seems to indicate, like in parallel to some of the stuff you cite here, that when you, when you give 
um, these, these tax refunds to families, um, not tied to work, um, they're, they're often spent well. So this goes against um, some of the, the prior expectations we have in mm-hmm. some cases. In some cases, we see money given to folks in poverty not spent well. A lot of it goes to alcohol and cigarettes or something of the sort. Um, but, but in these cases, these, these, uh, these refundable tax credits, at least the evidence I've seen from the UK and from Canada, seems to indicate that these kind of programs, uh, families will spend less on alcohol and cigarettes or, or these kinds mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. Which, which sounds at least parallel to some of the evidence about conditional cash grants or, or unconditional yes. cash grants in the developing world. Yeah. But of course, the, the evidence for universal basic income, for instance, is very mixed. Mm-hmm. And so there's lots of contradictory evidence about you know, what, what the effect of redistribution is. And it's a, a little bit difficult to sort through. But it, it does look like there are some really similar themes. Um, I'd love it if you would spend the next five years sorting through all of it for me and then writing another book. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm not allowed to tell you what your research agenda is. <laughs> well, it sounds like, um, sounds like you're the one that's in, that's neck deep. Up, up, if well, in, I'm, I'm, unfortunately though, I got a, I got a <laughs> book deadline in, um, in a few months. And so I, I'm going to, I'm going to have to deal with some of these issues, but I won't be able to do the, you know, the five-year dig into it. Yeah. Um, hey, you know, I've, I, I think I'd like to finish off with a general question, but it's one that we've talked about in, in some depth already, I think. And so you can answer it however you like. But one of, the, one of the big purposes of the Association of Christian Economists has always been to ask the question, um, in what ways would it make a difference for an economist to be a Christian? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and people have answered that in a lot of different ways. And, um, and the, the disagreement and conversation and learning from each other about how we answer this question has been really fruitful for the association for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to pose you the question. Um, what, uh, what is the role of the Christian economist? Uh, or alternatively, what, what does Christianity add to the practice of economics? Mm, gosh, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. I, boy, I think without... You know, a, a lot of times we, you know, in our models that we draw for our students on the on on the blackboard, um, we 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 sort of look at the beauty of markets as they operate given certain sets of assumptions, and 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 a lot of those assumptions have to do with just basic honesty and values and, th- and things like that, mm-hmm. and 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 I think we should, you know, Adam Smith always talked about um, about virtue along with choice, right? And, um, and, and so, so I think that as, as Christian economists, we should never get away from the idea that, um, that goodness and character and virtue and, um, and these kind of values can be separated from economics. So I think that's, I think that's one, I think that's one area, but, but I also yeah. think it being a Christian should set our research agenda. We each have different interests and, and promptings and callings, but, but I think as a Christian economist, we, we need to really be challenged with the idea of, of um, the Bible talks a lot about resources and, and, and I think a Christian economist should be, should be, should be thinking about the poor, like wealth and poverty and how to, how to create systems that reflect some kind of um, systems or even systems of giving or patterns of giving or patterns of engagement that, that should look more like what a kingdom version of economics should, should look like. Um, you know, along those lines, I would really recommend Brian Fickert's uh, new book, Becoming Whole. 
Oh, yes. Um, yeah, is which is which is a great book. I'm doing I'm doing a book review actually for Faith and Economics on on that on that book um, in the next month or two. And uh, and um, yeah, I just uh, you know with his with his with his co-author um, Kopech, I think. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, I mean I mean which which really talks about a, a lot about the the difference between sort of like worldly values and kingdom values in terms of um, in, in thinking about um, poverty and wealth and even sort of what we, what we are pointing the poor in the developing wor- world towards, <laughs> you know, I mean, are we pointing them basically towards this, um, you know, kind of our American materialist sort of um, kind of system, right. Um, that's, that's, that's um, kind of pointing each of us toward, toward acquiring more and more wealth and entertainment for ourselves. Right. Or are we, pointing people towards something greater. And, and I would strongly suggest that, that a biblically based idea of human flourishing is what we should be pointing people towards you know, the kind of the shalom that's talked about in the old Testament, um, human dignity, human flourishing that as economists, as Christian economists, that's what we should have our eye on and be orienting our teaching and our research around those, those kinds of values. That I think is a great note to end it on. Um, Thank you so much for having this conversation. Uh, we um, hopefully a lot of folks will who will listen to this podcast will will go out and buy your book. Again, it's Shrewd Samaritan. It came out in two thousand nineteen, uh, so it's somewhat recent. And I, um, as as I noted, I thought it was just it was just wonderful. And it's wonderful in part because I think it's a book I could share with an undergraduate student who's interested in these issues. Mm. They don't have to have a lot of technical expertise. And I think you can you can hear that from the kind of conversation we've had. And, and you just seem to have a gift for communicating uh, both for the church about how we can do this kind of stuff well, but also uh, to folks who aren't Christians about some of this technical economic evidence. So thanks again for, for writing the book and for having the conversation. Steve, thank you so much for having, having me on the podcast. It's absolute pleasure being with you. All right. Thanks so much, Bruce. That is our show for today. Again, I am Stephen McMullen of Hope College and editor of the journal Faith and Economics. If you have any comments or questions, I would love to hear from you. You can always email me at podcast at christianeconomist.org. Remember to subscribe or follow us so you can see new episodes as we release them and to rate us on Apple Podcasts so that other people can find this show. For those interested in supporting the show, we welcome monetary donations. Just go to anchor.fm slash faithfuleconomy and click on the button that says support. 100% of donations go toward the programming of the Association of Christian Economists. No one associated with ACE is paid a dime, and donations are all tax deductible. Faithful Economy is a program of the Association of Christian Economists and the journal Faith and Economics. You can find out more about the association and the journal at christianeconomists.org, and you can follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn.